you would, please turn to Luke chapter 8. Luke chapter 8. And uh, if you would stand, uh, we're going to be looking at verses 22 through 25 this morning. Luke 8, 22 through 25. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even the winds and water? And they obey him. Lord, we're humbled when we come into your presence and even have the smallest idea of who you are and the power that you hold. God, that you are righteous and we are not is a frightening thought. And yet, God, we can come to the cross and cling to Jesus and stand before you pure and forgiven. God, we thank you for that and we pray that you would make that truth more powerfully evident to us here this morning. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm not the kind of person that's uh, generally fixated with the supernatural. I'm much more comfortable standing on the firm foundation of the, of the logical and the explainable. I want to think about the world around me in concrete terms. I want to think about the world in consistent terms where we can reliably expect specific outcomes in specific situations. Even when it comes to my thoughts about God, I want to be able to understand Him and explain Him, but I tend to put God in a box and require Him to to fit within the parameters of the laws of nature. Sure, I can theologically proclaim the omnipotence and sovereignty of, of God over all things, but in reality, my expectations limit God to the natural and rarely extend to the supernatural. Maybe it's my knee-jerk response to the televangelist frauds who purport to orchestrate miraculous healings in the name of Jesus, but rather just bring shame to his name. Or maybe it's a response to the prosperity gospel teachers who proclaim if you do this or you do that or you give enough, God will miraculously deliver to you great health and an abundance of wealth. This fraudulent selling of, of supernatural power of God has probably caused me, and I would expect probably many of you even, to swing to the opposite extreme where we proclaim the power of God, but we practically live with very little perspective on his supernatural sovereignty. But the reality is we live in a universe that is defined by the supernatural. While we may cling to the laws of nature, whether you're a believer or an atheist or an agnostic You have to acknowledge that the universe cannot be explained purely in natural terms. The laws of nature bump up against the supernatural. Consider the following. Think about the the energy in the universe. Think about an average thunderstorm. In an average thunderstorm, which we witnessed, I would consider it to be more than average thunderstorms in Cambodia, but the average thunderstorm in the world releases 10 million kilowatt hours of energy. That's the equivalent of a 20 kiloton nuclear warhead. Now, that may not mean a whole lot to a lot of you, most of you. It's a lot of energy. 
Thunderstorms can range from 10 to 100 times bigger than even that. And around the world, there are thunderstorms happening all the time. There are approximately 16 million thunderstorms each year around the world. That's a lot of energy being released around the world on a constant basis just through thunderstorms. The heat of one lightning bolt ranges up to 50,000 degrees Fahrenheit. Around the world, lightning strikes the earth at a rate of about 100 times per second. It's a lot of energy. The sun is 27 million degrees Fahrenheit in temperature. And it gives off more energy. Follow this. The sun gives off more energy in one second than all of the energy that's been harnessed by man put together since Adam and Eve. In one second out of the sun. To put it another way, the sun produces more energy in one second than one billion cities. There aren't a billion cities in the world, by the way. There's two and a half million. One billion cities the size of Los Angeles how much energy they consume over one year, that's how much energy the sun puts out in one second. Now we're just starting to talk about silly numbers. Uh, that doesn't mean anything, does it? The numbers are too big, it's too, too astronomical to really make it mean anything. Our sun is only of average size compared to other stars. There are stars within the universe that are 1,500 times the size of the sun. And within our universe, you really want your brain to, to, to go on, you know, out of control. There are 100 billion galaxies within our universe. And within each of those galaxies, there are hundreds of billions with a B stars of, of their own in each of those galaxies. That's a lot of stars. That's a lot of energy flowing out of, out of the universe. If you could travel at the speed of light, you could go around the earth seven times in one second. That's pretty fast. If you were going at that speed, it would take you 28 billion years to get to the edge of the known universe. It's a long ways out there. There's a lot of stars. There's huge stars. There's massive amounts of energy being poured out of those stars. And you consider that our sun, on an average size, produces all of that energy in one second. And then add to that, we, t we consider a well-known formula, E equals mc squared. You know you're coming to a science lesson this morning. E equals mc squared. What does that stand for? E is energy equals m, mass, times c, the speed of light, squared. Now, the speed of light is really, really fast. I think it's 186,000 186, miles per second, something like that. And then watch this math. You take the speed of light, 186,000 miles per second, you square it, multiply it times itself, and you get a really, really big number. And then you take that really, really big number, and you multiply it times the mass of any object, and take a really, really small object. You take a, something that has just a very little bit of mass, and you multiply it times this really, really big number, and what do you get? You get a lot of energy. Let me give you an example. If you took the average-sized tree in the world, and you could take the mass from the average-sized tree in the world, and you could convert that, and you could harness the energy that would be within the average-sized tree, you would be able to generate 45 trillion kilowatt-hours of energy. That number doesn't mean anything to me. 45, remember that number, 45 trillion kilowatt hours of energy. The United States, over a year, consumes about 4 trillion kilowatt hours of energy in, elect in electrical energy in one year. So 4 million is what we consume in one year in the United States. One average-sized tree, if you take all the mass and you could pull all the energy out of it, it would have 45 trillion kilowatt hours of energy. That's one tree. 
Think about all the mass that there is in this room, in this city, in this country, in this world. All the energy in all of that mass, all the energy in all the stars and the galaxies going out for 28 billion years of traveling at the, light, at the speed of light. There is a lot of energy in the universe. The first law of thermodynamics says that energy can be transformed, but it can't be created or destroyed. So we have a constant amount of energy that is in the universe since everything came into being. We can't even begin to appreciate or comprehend this immense power. But here's the question. Where does that energy come from? What powers the universe? Let me give you a basic answer that everybody must agree with. It must be supernatural. It must be supernatural. The fuel that powers the universe is either infinite and eternal in and of itself, or it has to be derived from something else that is infinite and eternal. But the answer is that there is, is, that there is something supernatural about the energy that powers the universe. Hebrews 1.3 says that Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by what? By the word of his power. Colossians 1 says that, Jesus, speaking of Jesus, says, For by him all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. All things were created by Jesus. All things were created for Jesus. Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. Everything in the world, everything in the universe is held together by the supernatural. There is no such thing as a natural state of things. The laws of nature only function because the supernatural holds it all together. We may not recognize or appreciate the supernatural around us, but every moment, our every breath is dependent on supernatural power a power that can only be supplied by Jesus. What we experienced in Cambodia was a glimpse of this great power. I remember walking down the street about 4 o'clock the day of, of Speechless, Friday afternoon, with a few other people from our team, looking up, and the clouds are rolling in. They're ominous. They're heavy, just like it's been every single day. It's dark. And, uh, and then it starts sprinkling just a little bit coming down. And this is how it started. It started every day for eight straight days that we've been there. And this is what it does in the summer. In, uh, in Cambodia and we look up and we're like well that's, that, that's it you know, we're going to be rained out and we're not going to be able to, to do the speechless, the speechless program and then all of a sudden you start seeing about 10 minutes later the, the sprinkling stops and the clouds literally, literally start to part east and west, north and south and this little area of sunlight directly over our tent where we were gonna, going to be doing the speechless program opens up and everywhere around us full circle are dark, storming thunderclouds. Now, I don't care if you're Richard Dawkins or if you are Christopher Hitchens or Stephen Hawking or whatever leading atheist you want to go to. If they were there with us and they looked at that, they would have no explanation. There's no way to explain what happened that day when we saw what happened with the weather. And by the way, the next day, pouring rain at that same time. That, that was an unexplainable event outside of the supernatural and as we were watching the clouds roll, black, roll back and the, and the blue sky shining, I couldn't stop thinking about Luke chapter 8. In a lot of ways, I could relate to the disciples in this passage. So let's look back here at Luke chapter 8, verse 22. Starts off saying, one day. Stop right there. One day. NASB says, one of, these day, one of those days. Luke had been 
recounting stories about uh, Jesus' life, and, and uh, he was sort of going in chronological order, but he would jump ahead and tell something from the future, and he would kind of go out of chronological order at times. And so he's kind of resetting the chronology right here, and he says one day or one of those days. But it was a specific day that Luke was talking about as he resets the chronology. Which day is this? Well, from Mark we know which day. This is the day that Jesus taught on the four soils, and he taught on the, the parable of the, of the lamp. This is the day that Jesus was preaching to the crowds, and they were pressing in on him so close he had to step back, and he had to, he had to stand in a boat to preach so that they wouldn't be overwhelming him. This is the day that Jesus spent all day preaching and teaching. This was a long day for Jesus. I can tell you, uh, this afternoon I'm probably going to take a nap. I get to teach uh, three services here today, and it's tiring. Pastor Mike can tell you, Sunday afternoon, it's, a, it's, it's tiring. Here Jesus is, he preached all day long. And it's important to keep in mind, in his humanity, at the end of the day, he was tired. One day, that day, it says he got into a boat with his disciples. He got into a boat. Now, with, when it says disciples, we think of 12 disciples, the 12 apostles. Well, keep in mind that the apostles were chosen from among the disciples. The disciples were just simply learners. There were hundreds of people following Jesus that were learning from him. Some of them were saved, some of them were not. In John chapter 6, verse 66, it makes clear that after some time, some of the disciples abandoned Jesus. They walked away from Jesus. They weren't all saved. But from these disciples came the apostles. But this says that the disciples got in the boat with him. And in fact, we know from, uh, from Mark chapter 4 that uh, there were other boats that went along with him. So Jesus gets in the boat and his disciples get in the boat and there are other disciples that get in other boats and I don't know, maybe there was a whole fleet or a regatta of boats going across this lake. Jesus couldn't get away from the masses even when he gets into a boat and goes across the lake. But you kind of have to have that, that scene set in your mind that what's going to happen is in front of all these boats out on the lake. And they get in the boat to cross the lake. This is actually referring to the Sea of Galilee. But lake is probably a better word. This is the... Uh, um, this is a, a, a freshwater lake, and the surface of the lake is about 680 feet below sea level. This is the lowest freshwater lake uh, in the world. The lake is about 13 miles long, 7 miles wide, and understanding the geography of this is kind of important. Um, to the west are the hills of Galilee, which are about 1,500 feet high, and to the east is a plateau known as the Golan Heights, that are about 3,000 feet high, and to the north are the Lebanese mountains that go up to about 10,000 feet high, and those mountains are covered with snow, and it's particularly Mount Hermon. Um, the snow melts at the top of the mountain and flows down and, and uh, flows into forming the Jordan River, which leads to the Sea of Galilee and feeds the Sea of Galilee. And uh, because the lake is so low, it's again 600 feet below sea level, and you have all these mountains around it. It's like a, it's, it's like a bowl at the, at the bottom of these mountains. And, uh, and, and with all the canyons and ravines and plateaus and cliffs and valleys, it forms the perfect scenario where the wind can just come whistling through those ravines and canyons. And they get funneled into, 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 into sharp um, points where they come out and they go down into that, into that bowl of this lake. And uh, you have this cold air coming in with the winds, and you have warm air that sits normally when the, when the air is still. And, it, and the cold air comes in and mixes with the warm air, being funneled through these ravines and canyons. And it is the ideal situation to get violent storms and violent wind. You can almost get hurricane or tornado types of winds that occur on the Sea of Galilee, on this lake. There are all kinds of stories and data, even, even modern times. You can look this up of regular, violent, raging storms that hit this lake in the most unpredictable 
of times. And so it says here in, in Luke chapter 8 that uh, this is the lake they, uh, that they are on. Um, he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. And so they set out. And so this is the lake that they're making their way across. And it says in verse 23, And as they sailed, he fell asleep. Jesus fell asleep. Only place in the Bible we have reference of Jesus sleeping. Jesus fell asleep. He was human. He was tired. He was exhausted. He was still God. He knew exactly what was coming. And it didn't bother him in the least. All the power of the universe in him. Sleep. In the boat. He was completely in control. Yet in his humanity... He was asleep. And then one of these amazingly violent storms hits. He's asleep in verse 23. And a windstorm came down on the lake and they were filling with water and they were in danger. Matthew uses the term seismos megas to describe the storm. It's basically a water quake. It was such a violent storm. It was to the point where, where these veteran fishermen who'd grown up fishing on this lake, they were freaking out. They were thinking that they were going to die. They thought this storm was going to kill them. This wasn't like, like Taylor Schlazus on our trip that the first night that the thunderstorm hit when we're at the goods house. She's hiding under the kitchen table. You know, these are guys that are used to massive storms and, 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 and they'd grown up on the Sea of Galilee and, and, and this was a serious storm to get their attention and to make them afraid. And they go running to Jesus and they say, they say Master, Master, we are perishing. In Matthew, they say, Lord, Lord. And in Mark, they say, teacher, teacher. This is an inconsistency in the text where you see one place it says master and teacher and Lord. And this isn't a case where the storm hits and the disciples say, okay, let's have a meeting. How are we going to handle this? All right, let's elect a spokesperson. Peter, you're the guy. Peter, why don't you go over to Jesus, wake him up, and uh, say, hey, master, and uh, here's how we're going to address them. That's not how it happened. This is chaos. They thought they were going to die. They're all running to Jesus. Master, teacher, Lord. They were calling him anything and everything they could to get his attention. Save us. We are going to die. They're clamoring for Jesus to wake up. And in the middle of this, Jesus woke up says, and he awoke, and he rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. Mark records that Jesus said, hush, be still. And then in Mark 4.39 it says, it became perfectly still. Now, if Jesus could speak and stop the wind and the storm... That would be amazing enough. But there's another miracle underneath this that we may miss. Imagine if you were holding a bowl of water and you're sloshing it all around, and all of a sudden you're like, okay, I'm done, you set it down. What's happening to the water in the bowl? It's still going to slosh around for a while, right? Well, Jesus says, hush, be still, and the wind stops. But you'd think that the waves would still kind of be rolling. It says it was perfectly still. He calmed the winds, and he made the water perfectly still immediately. There was no wind, no waves. This is immediate, total, complete obedience of the weather to Jesus. Now consider the question that ends this passage. Verse 25. Who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? Who's this? They had to know Psalm 65 praises God. But it says, who stills the roaring of the seas and the roaring of their waves. Or Psalm 89 that says, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. God was in their boat. And yet Jesus responds to them and says, where's your faith? 
Where is your faith? Consider that by this time, the disciples had seen him heal people, cast out demons, raise people from the dead. But this was personal. Their lives were at stake. This wasn't a place where they could just be theologically objective. Their lives were at stake. You know, we can talk theology all day long, but it's not until it's personal that we really know where our faith is. Jesus says to them, where is your faith? And then the the phrase that kind of echoed in my mind in Cambodia while we were witnessing this power over the weather says, and they were afraid and they marveled. I can relate to that. I think our group was a bit afraid. When you see the clouds rolling in and then they roll back out and you're like, that's not supposed to happen. That gets your attention. But the disciples, they were afraid. They were fearful. They panicked. John MacArthur puts it this way. He says, what's worse than having a storm outside your boat is having the creator of the universe in your boat. The sobering thought They were terrified because they knew who he was. They were acutely aware of their own sin, their own shortcomings. Here's God in our boat. They thought they were going to die from the storm, but the calming of the storm was even more frightening. Now, control over weather, that's that's real power. Um, I, I, I can understand our shortcomings with our abilities to control weather. We're there in Cambodia, and I'd like to think of myself as a problem solver. And I saw the problem coming. We were going to have a weather problem for our speechless program. So I immediately started thinking about how do I solve this problem? How do I fix the weather? And so I had a meeting with myself, and here's how the meeting went. Well, I could, and that's as far as my meeting went, because there's there's no way to end that sentence about what you can do about the weather. Well, I did think of one thing. I thought if we get a whole bunch of helicopters and we fly them up and they spin their propellers fast enough, then maybe they can push the clouds back. But we are helpless when it comes to the weather. We can do nothing about the weather. Jesus says, hush, be still, and the weather obeys. Jesus is the source of all power in the universe, infinite power over everything. And then it says they marveled. They were amazed. They were in wonder. They were astonished. This is not a, whoa, that was really cool kind of a response. That's not where they were at. They were were amazed by what they had just witnessed. The disciples, they were afraid. They marveled when they realized that God was in the boat it made the storm seem small and realizing that God was in the boat it made an impact on the disciples and that should make an impact on us I want to give you three things real quick about how we should be impacted by the truth that God is in the boat number one we should have a reality check the disciples got a serious reality check when they came face to face with such a powerful demonstration of the power of Jesus. When we're exposed to God's power, whether in nature or in his word, it should be a constant reality check for us. He's real. He's here. He's engaged. And if you're a believer and you put your faith in him, then he's in you. That should mean something. If you've not repented or turned to Christ for salvation, he's still real. The consequences are still real. And that should mean something. I can appreciate the fear that the disciples felt when they realized that God was in the boat. I can relate. There's a moment right before Speechless started that I was kind of went off by myself and I was thinking, what is going on here? God's really serious about the gospel being proclaimed today. Are we ready? Are our hearts right? Are we prepared right? Are we worthy? And feeling a sense of our own inadequacy and, and, and sin and, and saying, God, you are really serious about this. Are we that serious? 
God's not messing around. He's moving the weather around. It's a reality check. Coming face to face with the power of God is a frightening thing. Don't mess around with that kind of power. We're nothing. We sin and we regularly offend the one who holds this power. You know, so often we fall into the trap of playing Christian. We pray, we read our Bibles, uh, you know, we, we come to church, we call out to God when we need help, we do the Christian things. Maybe we not, don't really mean it, we're not really, we're not really in it. God's in it. He's not playing. He's real. The gospel is real. Jesus is real. There are real consequences. There's real judgment. And we're really accountable. If that doesn't get our attention, then something's wrong. It's a reality check when we understand the truth that God is in the boat. Number two, it gives us an urgent purpose. If Jesus is real, if hell is real, if the cross is real, if the gospel is real, there should be urgency to our lives. We get a defined amount of time on this earth. There's no do-overs. It's appointed to man once to die, and after that comes judgment. You live, you die, there's judgment. Better be clear about our purpose in life, and we better be urgent about it. Paul tells the Ephesians in Ephesians 1 that the whole purpose of our salvation is to praise the glory of his grace. We're to praise his grace. We're to praise the cross. We're to praise Jesus. We proclaim the gospel. We live a life informed by the gospel. We're to live in a way that points to the cross, that reflects Jesus, that honors him. We're to use our most precious commodity, our time, to serve him. When I come to the end of my life, I want to be able to say like Paul, I fought the good fight. I finished the race. I ran hard in service to the Lord. Rick Holland is asked, how do you know if you're running in the race? And the answer is, you're tired. You're not tired, maybe you're not running. We waste so much of what God gives us. God's in the boat. That should give us an urgent purpose. We should have a reality check, an urgent purpose, and number three, an unwavering trust. When we see that Jesus is real and we see Jesus as God and we see Jesus with immense power, when we see Jesus like the disciples saw Jesus in the boat, our trust shouldn't waver. Waves are nothing. They're stopped instantly at the sound of Jesus' voice. How do the waves of your life compare to the, the power of Jesus? What do you stress about? What are you worried about? Christ is in you. And where do you think those waves come from in the first place? He's either creating the waves in your life or he's allowing them for a purpose. We praise the glory of his grace when we trust that the waves are there in life because it's, it's that, that's those times that we cling to him and that we praise him. When we can praise him in the midst of the waves, that brings him glory. We praise him while the waves are going on, not just when he stops the waves. So we see Jesus as God in the boat gives us a reality check, gives us an urgent purpose, should give us unwavering trust. But the reason that we can really trust him is that not only was Jesus God in the boat, but for those who believe in him, Jesus is the boat. Sounds like kind of a funny thing to think about, but let me spend our remaining time considering that. Jesus is the boat. There's a prominent sports figure this week that released a biography detailing his lifelong battle with depression. He has riches and fame, but no joy, no peace. He says that his depression is based on always feeling like he was not good enough, not measuring up. 
Well, I've got news for you. You're not good enough. I'm not good enough. None of us are good enough. None of us measure up. Our sin contaminates us. Our sin condemns us. We have every reason to be depressed. But Jesus, with all that power, more than measures up. And that power is directed toward us to make us look like him. To save us from God's judgment and bring us to eternal glory. To give us eternal joy, eternal peace. And that's enough to give us joy and peace now. And I want to illustrate this for you. Look at 1 Peter chapter 3, if you would. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 3. Remember that the greatest problem we have in life is when God is at war with us. All that power is stored up to be unleashed upon all who sin on the day of judgment. God is righteous. He's holy. Sin robs God of all the glory that he rightly deserves. So sin must be punished. And all who sin face judgment. That's all of us. 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. He was the perfect sacrifice. The righteous sacrificed for us, for us, the unrighteous. He suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Why did he suffer? He suffered to bring us to God. Now watch how Jesus' death on the cross, how his ultimate resurrection, how this all goes to bring an end to any fear that we should have of death, any fear that we should have of judgment. It shapes our perspective. It says that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah. While Jesus' body was in the grave, Jesus died on the cross, body goes in the grave, what happened to his spirit? Where did he go during that time that his body was in the grave? He didn't just go out of existence. He didn't just stop existing. But it says here that he went to prison. He wasn't incarcerated, but he went to make a proclamation in the prison of hell. To who? It says to spirits. This word spirits refers to always to, to disobey, or to angels, or in this case, disobeying angels, or what we would call demons. You can read more about these demons in Genesis chapter 6. They came to earth, and they did very evil things, and God said, that's enough. They were going too far, and God said, that's enough, and he sent them to hell. They were bound in hell at that time. Second Peter 2, 4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until judgment... Jude 1, 6 says, And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling, he is kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Some demons are still loose in this world, but some are already bound in hell. Ultimately, they'll all be thrown in hell, but there are already some that are in hell from the days of Noah. And when Jesus died, his spirit went to hell to this eternal prison to make a proclamation. Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Him. He was proclaiming His triumph over sin and death. He was proclaiming ultimate power. He was proving that He was God and that He had conquered death. He put them to shame, triumphing over them. Now back to 1 Peter chapter 3. We pick it up here in verse 20. Because they did not formally obey when God's patience waited in the day of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. 
All right, if you've been daydreaming so far uh, during this, this would this be the time to, to uh, pay attention. I'd really like you to understand where we're going next with this. While the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. So in this time, this time of Noah, evil reigned, and God took dramatic action. He sent demons to hell, and he flooded the earth. He unleashed this massive power. He flooded the earth, and he made a statement to all future generations, I am really serious about sin, so serious that I'm wiping out the earth except for these eight people, Noah and his family. God saved eight. It says here, God went, uh, the ark was being prepared in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Noah and his family were brought safely through the water. They were brought safely through the flood of God's judgment. They were brought safely in an ark through God's judgment, raining down on the world, yet Noah and his family were safe. Why? Because they were in the ark. They were brought safely through the judgment because they were in the ark. And they were brought through the flood and into a new life on the other side of the flood. Now, verse 21 says, baptism, which corresponds to this. Now, that kind of feels like out of left field, doesn't it? Now, all of a sudden, he's talking about baptism. And, and he says, which corresponds to this. Of course, I can see how baptism corresponds to Noah and the ark and Jesus visiting demons. And yeah, this all goes together. Well, it does. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Corresponds to what? Baptism, which corresponds to being brought safely through the water, to being brought safely through the judgment of God. Baptism now saves you. Now, it's not talking about water baptism here. It's not talking about being baptized that that now saves you. But there is a kind of baptism that does save you. This word baptism, it literally means immersion, to be put into something. So being put into something saves you. You get put into something, it's, you're saved. And it corresponds back to the story about Noah and the ark. Well, how does this work? Well, it says... Baptism now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, so it's not talking about water baptism, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, a good conscience, one that's not condemned, one that's, that's been forgiven, a clean conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now what this is saying is what, what, we're, what baptism we're talking about, the immersion, is we're immersing ourselves into our cries to God, to our pleading to God. God, save me. I am a sinner. Forgive me. Pleading for God. Begging for God's mercy. We are immersed in our, in our dependence and in our, in our, our hope of mercy from God. And we hope based on the cross, based on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. We base our hope on that and we plead before God. We are immersed before God in calling out to Him. This is repentance. You see, you put your faith in Christ and God, in His grace, places you into Christ and you go through judgment through the water in Christ Romans 8 there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus let me put it this way Jesus is the boat Jesus is the ark Noah was brought safely through the judgment of God in the ark the rains poured the floods came up Noah and his family were safe in the ark from the judgment of God. And what this is saying is that when we immerse ourselves into pleading and begging before God, asking for his mercy, we place our faith and our hope on the cross, on the death and the resurrection of Jesus who went to hell and proclaimed his triumph over sin and over death. When we do that, God places us into Jesus. And when we die, 
we are in Jesus and we pass through the judgment of God. And the judgment and the fury of Almighty God rains down and we are covered by Jesus. He is the boat. He's the ark. And just as Noah was preserved through the flood, through the judgment of God, by the ark, we're preserved through death into a new life in Jesus. He rescues us from sin so that we can have him and be with him in a new life for all of eternity. Some people don't get this. Jesus saves us so we can get Jesus. That sounds kind of like Jesus is all about Jesus. Well, guess what? Jesus is all about Jesus. Not only does he protect us from the judgment, but he gives us the best gift that there is, himself. Love desires the best for the one who is loved, and Jesus is better. The creator is better than the creation. All that we enjoy in this world, family, sports, music, art, travel, adventure, physical intimacy, whatever it is, it's all shadows of the power and glory of God. It's just a glimpse of the real thing. He's better than all that. He made it all. He's the source of it all. He's the power. He's the energy behind it all. He saves us from our sin, and he saves us so that our eyes would be open to see him so that we won't just be satisfied with these things on earth that are shadows of the real thing. We're going to be satisfied with the real thing. God in the boat should get our attention. And it should even cause some fear. But when we see Jesus as the boat, as the ark, that brings us to him, we see that as ultimate love. And we should just stand amazed and worship. The hymn writer Charles Gabriel captures the right response perfectly. He says, I stand amazed in the presence of Jesus the Nazarene and wonder how he could love me, a sinner condemned unclean. He took my sins and my sorrows. He made them his very own. He bore the burden to Calvary and suffered and died alone. When with the ransomed in glory, his face I at last shall see. T'will be my joy through the ages to sing of his love for me. How marvelous, how wonderful, and my song shall ever be. How marvelous, how wonderful is my Savior's love for me. Lord, we are so thankful for that love. We're so thankful for that covering that we have. We deserve the judgment of God, and yet we put our faith in Jesus. You put us in Jesus, and he covers us, and he delivers us to the ultimate in joy and peace. God, may we be shaped by our understanding of, of seeing God's power more clearly, and, and God, that we would be moved to live a life based on reality, to live a life with an urgent purpose. God, that we would trust you unwaveringly and that we would love you in response to the love that you give to us. God, we praise you and we worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.